August, I'll be doing the training today. We're going to talk about today the CSERT model. Now that stands for Components for Enhancing Clinician Engagement and Reducing Trauma. Now this model was discussed in a research paper, so it hasn't been studied in use. But what I found really interesting about it is that it utilizes a lot of evidence-based practices that we use with our clients, but we don't often automatically think to use with ourselves. So that's kind of the purpose of our presentation today, is kind of discovering the use of those concepts in our own practice. Okay, so the first question, big question to start off, is working with trauma. What is important for your role as a therapist? Um, as someone that worked in public mental health, most of us did not have a specialization in EMDR or trauma-focused CBT or biofeedback therapy, but a lot of our clients came with these extensive and complicated histories of trauma. So nonetheless, I found that no matter what system you were in in public mental health, this was something that you were going to come across. Um, so for many, if you'd like to write in chat what's important for your role, it can be being a sense of a healer. Ooh, creating a safe space. Thank you, David. Um, also, you may come to represent a maternal or paternal figure that is a sense of safety as well. There was this great article about a child therapist that saw herself as a fairy godmother who came and made the pumpkin into a coach, but then she couldn't stay. The princess had to figure out the rest and that kind of helped her make peace with the fact that you can't be there for every child forever. So often in trauma work there has to be an acceptance of stories that you won't get to see told to their finality. Uh, for me, I used to call myself their cheerleader and that's why there are sparkles on this page uh, to reference that. I have never been a cheerleader in my life, nor had an interest to be, but I really found a passion for working in mental health and I could be quite peppy in celebrating the small wins that they may see as unnecessary, but it was a very useful metaphor for my role with them and kind of cheering them on through their ups and downs. I see DJ is talking about building rapport with the client through trust. It's extremely important. So working with trauma, there's lots of lingo that comes up when we're working with trauma. We all know that transference happens. The client projects feelings about someone else onto us. And in turn, this may impact our feelings towards the client or counter-transference. I added in desensitization as it was something that our team at the crisis house could often struggle with and I wish we addressed it more. It was often something that we didn't see happening unless someone pointed it out. You can hear so many terrible stories about trauma and see disheartening and traumatic interactions with emergency services working in mental health. And we all take this on as part of the job. We get this culture of toughness, or at least we did, and that only the strong survive working in this field, but handling crisis after crisis without acknowledgement of the things that we were experiencing, that we were trying to help people through in therapy, diminished our overall emotional responsiveness. That toughness that we use to shield ourselves could often create expectations of our clients that were not realistic. Um, vicarious trauma has some overlap with desensitization as it refers to negative changes in the clinician's view of themselves, of others, or the world. And that results from repeated empathic engagement with clients' trauma-related thoughts, memories, and emotions. So desensitization can be a result of vicarious trauma, but so can 
many other things. I know we often think of working in the system can be so draining sometimes and it can feel like no matter how hard we work and how hard our client works, there are barriers to housing and to treatment that just depends on the right day to get someone into the services they need most. And our brain tends to remember negative experiences more than the positive. So for our staff, we had a very tiny staff bathroom and a very tiny office, and we would often have postcards, artwork, and letters from former and current clients as a daily reminder of the good that we were doing. And burnout, you know, we hear burnout all the time in mainstream media even. It's emotional exhaustion, cynicism, and a reduced sense of accomplishment. The difference between vicarious trauma and burnout is that burnout typically occurs gradually where vicarious trauma has an abrupt, rapid onset. And the last sort of concept is compassion fatigue, which is a non-clinical term for describing the cost of caring for traumatized populations. A lot of these terms have been used interchangeably, and the focus of talking about this is just to acknowledge that this does happen in our field They've had studies where 8 to 16% of graduate students and social workers struggled with compassion fatigue and over 50% in clinicians with trauma survivors. And when we have that sort of rich data, it just bolsters the fact that we need more support and we need to do things for ourselves that support each other in our community as clinicians. I'm just gonna check the chat really quick because I see a couple things. Oh, self-efficacy from DJ. And yes, the slides are available. Jennifer talks about empowering clients to not let their trauma define their identity and give the power, get the power back. Yes, so important that we remember when working in mental health, trauma and not trauma is that this is just one part of them and of course it is so important to discuss and to heal as much as we can but to remember so many other important aspects of their life and of their identity that are outside of their trauma and outside of their mental health so the goal today is to find practices that can aid in remedying some of these concerns there's no way to eradicate the experiences of burnout or vicarious trauma, but there are measures we can take to stay in the field longer, to support each other more, and to acknowledge what we're going through. Normalizing is a skill that we so often use with clients when talking about mental health, but when we talk about it amongst ourselves, we often just tell each other to do self-care, and then we don't often have the time to do it. So the aim today is to find practices that we can use primarily at work, but also outside of work to protect against the frequency of experiencing these negative consequences, which are going to be natural at periods of time. One of the foundational ways to protect against vicarious trauma is empathy. Although empathy has also been cited as a risk factor for vicarious trauma, it's a skill that's needed to establish a therapeutic relationship. Empathy is a required vulnerability when working with trauma. There are many definitions, but it's commonly known that it's identifying with another's pain. And over time, because of burnout and other factors, our capacity for empathy may fluctuate or even diminish. And I bring all this up because I really like to find ways to remember to hold our empathy when working with those that have trauma. And one of these ways that's been helpful for me is to remember that trauma damages a client's ability to enter into a trusting relationship. So difficulties in establishing trust must be understood and anticipated from the onset of treatment. Those that have incurred trauma also often have a strong emotional response to those in a position of authority, as it was once associated with fear or terror previously in their life. 
If we think back to Eric Erickson and his eight stages of psychosocial development that we all learned in grad school, the very first one is trust versus mistrust. From birth to 18 months of age, this is where it's hopefully established, but for so many, it's not. And this disruption of trust disrupts the assured reliance on another's integrity. Judith Herman, in her amazing book, it's this quintessential read that my coworker, David Hainick, recommended to me, Trauma and Recovery. Um, it's a great book for working with trauma. Even though it was published in 1996, it still stands up. And um, I recommend you all read it when you have a chance. But it talks about how integrity can often be seen as the developmental achievement of maturity. Herman goes on to say, integrity is the foundation upon which trust in relationships are originally formed and upon which shattered trust may be restored. When we interlock integrity and trust in caretaking relationships, we complete the cycle of generations and regenerate the sense of human community, which trauma destroys. And we as therapists aim to model that same integrity with each client. Keeping our empathy maintains our integrity. So that brings us with that background of the CSERT model, which is the components for enhancing clinician engagement and reducing trauma. And this is compromised of five elements that are discrete action or skills from variety of evidence-based sources. And if we think of DBT, mindfulness-based CBT, and acceptance and commitment therapy, the concept of experiencing and tolerating distressing feelings are a core component of those treatments. But yet, as many of us know, we often don't take that advice, especially when we're in sessions all day and our focus is on helping the client through their traumatic experiences. So the skills model today in CSERT have both external and internal strategies to cope with trauma. And let's see, just checking in on the chat. Oh, thank you, Sasha, for putting that link. And I know this may seem like a simple question, but uh, today is about a lot of reflection. So I wanted to just put in a quick poll of how you primarily cope with trauma. And if that's internally or externally, because I know many of us may already think about this, but I think taking a moment to just kind of reflect of which is your primary mode. And if you'd like to share, please put in chat any of the ways that you're comfortable sharing that you cope internally or externally. So I know externally, I would love a hot bath at the end of a long day. That was my go-to. <laughs> so there are many simple ways and complex ways, but Anything you would like to share is more than welcome. Both, Javier, that's great. Good balance, meditation, exercise, walks, physical activity, run, yoga, meditation, outdoors with nature, fishing. That's great too. Yeah, these are all wonderful ways. Poetry, walks, yeah. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, we're in our mind all day, so it makes sense that we're going to cope externally primarily when we're done at the end of the day. Okay, I'll end that poll. All right, and you guys put internally, 25 people said internally, and 11 people said externally. Okay, so thank you for doing that with me. Our first skill that we're going to discuss is experiential engagement. And I really like kind of reflecting, maybe not now, but later on, of what are you going to do with this pain, the pain of this work? Because when we're fully engaging in the experience, there's a greater acknowledgement of uncomfortable emotions that arise. And the first step towards experiential engagement is to form the conscious intent 
to let our feelings be naturally experienced and released, which I know is easier said than done. I acknowledge that. <laughs> um, I really like this quote. I think it helps us normalize the depth and breadth of feelings that arise when working with trauma. This work requires your full engagement and participation in experiencing your emotions. And the quote is, if anyone's on the phone, the expectation that we can be immersed in suffering and lost daily and not be touched by it is as unrealistic as expecting to be able to walk through water without getting wet. So in this model, it's proposed that we don't experience compassion fatigue because of too much experiential engagement, but rather we experience it because we're not fully engaging with the emotional experience. So what's a way that we can more fully engage with the emotional experience? We've talked about noticing and observing our emotions. And the goal of that is to build the skill of non-reactivity through intentionality. And kind of the little metaphor I like to use for this is imagining that you're a musical instrument. Let's say you're a guitar and you're getting ready to have a duet with someone. You've never had a duet with this person before, but you're tuning your strings, making sure that you're on pitch. And here comes in your partner for this duet. And they have a flute. You've never played with a flute before. It's a different style than what you're used to. But you swiftly lean into this partner during the duet. You learn their timbre, their character or quality of musical sound distinct from its pitch and intensity. And maybe you lean away, providing space for their sound to shine, to be heard. So this fun musical metaphor is really to say that this concept of tuning can be used in the same way and that we may shift our posture, our tone of voice, our gaze, and our breath to maintain an a greater state of social engagement. Tuning is a reflexive skill that I think a lot of us use more prominently in de-escalation, right? We try to speak calmly. We maintain eye contact. If they like eye contact, if they don't, we don't, right? So we're reflexively adapting to what their needs are in the moment. Um, if we think of someone becoming agitated during the meeting and exploration isn't warranted at this time, we want to reference the goal of the meeting or the focus of the session. If a client speaks slowly or pauses a lot, we want to give them that space. We don't want to fill in that, that silence. We just want to ask reflexive questions that can or excuse me, reflective questions that can help further guide the discussion. And it's helpful to engage in this concept of tuning more because working with trauma, so many of complicated histories that we can go in and out of personalization or depersonalization, often associated with countertransference and transference. And remaining present and open to the experience is a basic but difficult first step to counteract our own internal desire to shield ourselves from the natural pains of this work. So I know that's a lot of concept for this one thing. So if anyone has any questions, please feel free to write them in the chat. And just to give another example of how to use this concept of experiential engagement, uh, I know that boundaries is always a big topic that we're constantly working on, discussing, and developing with each client. So boundaries are really about we're committing to the task of recovery and 
how are our boundaries established and maintained within that task of recovery? As you recall, trust is something that isn't present at the outset of treatment. So it's going to be tested, disrupted, and rebuilt. And this is where we often feel like our boundaries are being pushed. And that's where it's another opportunity of, for reflection of what are our boundaries for. They're not meant to, nor can they establish control. We have to try to balance our boundaries with the flexibility to make sure the client consistently has their own voice, their own sense of control, because those that have had trauma have had such, excuse me, losses of control at the hands of those that caused their trauma. These boundaries, most of all, when tested, can be a model for healthy ways to recover from disruption and rebuild the therapeutic alliance. And each person is different and you're all working in different environments that all have different rules. I know for us in crisis houses and residential, by law, we have so many rules to maintain our licensure with community care licensing. But even with that, the core was flexibility. If someone didn't want to come to our morning meeting before they had a cigarette and coffee, and if I often tried to make them come, it would ruin their whole day because a lot of our clients don't have this distress tolerance built up. But if I let them do the cigarettes and coffee and said, okay, but make your bed or take a shower after that, and we compromised, this flexibility often honored what was important to them, this ritual, and still helped them follow the rest of our rules because they did have to shower and make their bed that day anyway. <laughs> um, so that's just one example of many. Another difficult one to navigate is when clients are expressing themselves in disrespectful ways or frustrating ways we would often try to give them the space to do that, the space to feel heard. And if they couldn't or didn't have the insight at that time to reflect that perhaps they had gone a little too far in their uh, discussion with us and raising their voice or swearing or things like that, we would discuss the expectation of mutual respect as our boundary but that we also acknowledged if they were having a bad day or open to finding different ways to cope with their feelings. But in that same vein, we're not going to try to be yelled at for hours on end. So boundaries are created by negotiation. They're supposed to empower the patient or client and foster a good working relationship. Boundaries are not meant to be flexible in the fact that they are indulged so oftentimes we just have to remember to hold the reasoning for our boundaries in place when we're doing this work. All right. And I'm just going to check the chat really quick before we move on. Being mindful of one's own biases. Raul, that is a great point. Yes, it would. Our biases are very important. Um, for myself personally, I think I touched on a little bit of just the desensitization leading to higher expectation of clients. Um, I was a discharge planner at one of my first jobs and I would find people housing, but then I would end up getting this bias of like, well, why can't they find it? I've been calling all day, why can't they do it? But we're expecting people to have the same skill set and the same, you know, level of dedication that isn't often there because they have so many other things they're going through. So kind of trying to find out our biases that are personal or even our professional biases that come up when we've been working at the job for many years. So that's a very good point. Okay. So our second skill set we're going to talk about today is regulating rumination. And I had fun with quotes for this presentation. So here's another one. Too much thinking leads to paralysis by analysis. So regulating rumination involves reducing distressing experiences. 
And the goal to do that is to move from a wandering state in our mind to a focused, more goal-directed activity. And it's very natural to ruminate about sessions or clients. It's a very human experience to ruminate about things in general, especially in 2020 when there's so much going on. Um, I know in clinical work, we're told to leave work at work, but that's not always feasible to do. And that's where rumination can come in. Rumination may feel like it can help you make sense of a situation that you can't seem to understand or accept, so you keep replaying it. Other people may want reassurance that they were right especially if they feel on an unconscious level that they were wrong, which happens. We make mistakes in this work. That's oftentimes how we have the best lessons and learning with our team. And some people are trying to solve the problem or prevent similar things from happening in the future, but can't figure out how. Others may want to feel heard or validated or justified. Ultimately, it matters less why people ruminate over things and more how they can stop. So there is this book, Rumination Focused uh, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. There's this whole specialty in it. And they talk about how total absorption in a task is a natural counter to rumination. And rumination is outcome focused in that you're evaluating how you are doing and the motivation is to avoid mistakes and check performance. And when we switch from an outcome focus to a process focused way of thinking, we become more interested in how things are happening. We're more focused on learning and discovery and we naturally become more growth oriented in our thinking which is what we set out to do with the initial focus of performance. And total absorption means reconnecting with experience. That could be directly attending to what you are doing and the world around you. Um, you could focus your attention on an activity that you find very interesting and can be completely immersed, or you can visualize and recreate the experience of being absorbed. Um, which we'll go into later on as a sort of mindfulness exercise. Such absorbing experiences are described as flow experiences or peak experiences. People who play sports refer to them as being in the zone. And these experiences involve concrete thinking. Attention is focused on the details of the task and on sensory experiences, how our senses are being engaged as you concentrate on the process in this sequence of what's happening. And it may sound like a simple thing, this focused engagement, but in our line of like digital age, it's hard to unplug, but it's very rewarding when you do this focused engagement, it's a strong antidote to rumination, overgeneralization and inactivity, which I know can happen when we find that one season on Netflix that we're going to watch the whole thing. <laughs> So what are the keys to the state of flow? So I want you to think of an activity that you find rewarding. That's the goal of this state of flow is that the key is that it's rewarding in itself. Other key things is that there's a balance between the challenge of the task and your skill level. If the task is too difficult, it's hard to get absorbed, but if it's too easy, you're going to be bored. Um, another good point is that it involves a narrow temporal focus, which is a fancy way of saying you're focused on the present moment, not the past, not the future. Another helpful thing is if there are clear goals or immediate feedback or even rules, whatever of that, those three that are important to you. For example, when I play the piano, I hear and what exactly was played. So I get that immediate feedback. When you paint or you engage in artwork or scrapbooking or whatever craft of your choice or handiwork, um, carpentry, house renovation, you immediately see 
the next step that you're going to take, the brush stroke on the canvas, right? And the hope is that it's rewarding in itself because it's interesting, not what you might achieve as a result. And that takes time to shift away. I, in quarantine, have learned how to cook. And at first it was very frustrating because if it didn't come out perfect, <laughs> I got pretty frustrated. But when I shift to a more process-oriented way of thinking and enjoy the dicing, the chopping, the layers, the, the smells, all those different things, I enjoyed the experience that even if it didn't come out perfectly, it still helped me achieve this state of flow. And there's a focus on discovery, learning, our growth, right? Last but not least, it's consistent with what you value, what's important and meaningful for you to do outside of this work. And a lot of you already talked about you know, the exercise, the fishing, the yoga, the meditation, these all provide ways to a state of flow. And many different activities can. And it's more so about opening up our mind to make that shift from outcome to process oriented to help achieve it, not more so on limiting the activities that can result in this, but our mindset is the most important shift to make. Do we have any questions about this? Oh yeah. Thank you, David. Focus on discovery, learning, and growth. Mm -hmm. Focus and enjoy the process instead of the assumed outcome. Yeah. And that's difficult to do. I don't want to diminish that. We're all very achievement oriented. We all, you know, want to succeed at the end of the day, but it's a nice way of being kind to yourself as well when we're shifting to this mindset of discovery and curiosity that we often sort of lose after a little while when we're adults and we remember as children we were more focused on this same sort of thing. Okay, so with that we're on to our next skill set, which is developing a conscious narrative. And another quote by Brene Brown, who uh, is a very wonderful lady, who says, when we deny the story, it defines us. When we own the story, we can write a brave new ending. And I just think that's a really lovely way to frame things of our life and in our clients' lives. So the conscious narrative is developed in three components, the antecedent narrative, the concurrent narrative, and the consolidation narrative. But before we get into that, we're going to go into why is this important? <laughs> why will this be useful for me and my work? So a lot of studies have shown that disorganized, unassimilated narratives about traumatic events lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. And likewise, intense and unarticulated experiences are likely to lead to negative effects in our clinical work. So constructing a trauma narrative is a common practice in many treatments. There's a level of exposure that occurs during these retelling experiences that reduces anxiety and creates coherence in memory. And Judith Herman had a really great example in her book of a woman that was stalked, she fought off attempted rape and was still stalked after the fact had gone to police and they weren't being very helpful. And it was a year later and she was living in fear and starting to have suicidal thoughts. She had tried therapy, but was going to try this new therapist to see what else she could do. And the therapist, he really identified with her feelings of helplessness. And he thought, well, she's already been to therapy. What else can I really do for her? And instead began to focus on practical advice of steps to take to feel more safe and how to engage with the police more. And it wasn't really going anywhere. And the next week he asked her if anyone had asked her to tell her story of what had happened to her. 
And she began to cry and she said, no, people have just wanted me to get back to normal. And he kind of reflected back, did you not think I would want to listen either? And she agreed and said, no, I, I didn't think so. And from that jumping off point, she began to share her story. And it was extremely healing for her. She in turn rallied her friends and family and then uh, also found better ways that were more effective to engage with the police. So that's a really good example of how a trauma narrative can be very healing and very empowering for our clients. In the same vein, though, we want to be mindful of when we are using trauma narratives, we have to make sure that our clients are ready for that next step as it's very likely to bring up overwhelming emotions. And we don't want to re-traumatize the client with retelling their story. So we really want a plan in place of how to cope after the session and even during the session for the overwhelming feelings that may arise. So bringing it back to the CSERT model, they're basically saying that making a conscious narrative that directs the clinician's unarticulated memories, reactions, and conclusions about their clinical work into a narrative that is consciously directed, consciously articulated, it promotes a coherent reflection of our work and of our purpose in this work. So that's the goal of what it can do in our practice, hopefully. So our first one is the antecedent narrative. This is the narrative you've built up before your interactions with a client. It's your clinical work up till now. We're going to use breakout rooms for the other two, but we're not going to do it for this one because I know this is quite personal, but I'm hoping that we can take a minute or two to write down or if you're in the car, really reflect and think on one of these four questions that speaks to you and just kind of take a moment to reflect. Maybe it's on your role in your community of direct practice, just on your experience with clients or how system barriers and frustrations have impacted your ability to navigate trauma work or your level of confidence and abilities as a therapist that engages in trauma work. So I'm going to give us um, probably about two minutes to kind of write some things down, reflect. Okay, so I see David saying that system barriers can be really frustrating in working with trauma. Yes, yes, most definitely. And does anyone have anything that comes to mind about their role in their community of direct practice or what's important to them about working with trauma? Well, I know it's quite personal, so I understand if you don't want to share. Um, for me, I kind of, it may be a simplistic approach, but I always try to remember that I did something. It might be small, it might be big, but I tried to help someone in that way. And that positivity doesn't go away. I kind of think of physics and they say that energy is neither created nor destroyed. So what you put out there keeps on going is kind of what I hold true to me and dear to me to keep on going and remembering that even when I feel like I haven't gotten as much done as I could or helped as much as I could. Okay. So for our next portion, we are going to be using breakout rooms. <laughs> and I know that some people like them and some people don't, but I hope that you'll all participate as much as you can. We're, you're going to get a Google link in the chat before we divide you up that has this case example and then some questions to ask. And you can focus on just answering one or many. It's up to you. We're going to take five minutes to do that. So right now we're going to, I'll just read the case study 
and then we'll send you out to breakout rooms. So make sure you try to open the Google Doc now so you can see the questions that you're gonna be discussing. So Ava is a young woman in her early 20s that has a history of severe physical and emotional abuse as a child before being adopted into a loving home. She feels defined by her traumatic experiences and that her PTSD is too much to work through without EMDR, which is unavailable with Medi-Cal. Ava recently stepped down from residential treatment and is having difficulty adjusting to the transition. At first, she is eager to work quote unquote, through all this crap and appears to idealize you as her therapist. Yet the next week she claims that you are nothing like her last therapist she had in residential and that quote, Lauren really got me and you just don't. You reflect how it sounds like Lauren meant a lot to her and inquire as to anything you found useful that you learned together in therapy for helping with her trauma. She dismisses this and continues to focus on wanting to go back to the residential facility, although she was there for over a year and completed the program to the best of her ability. She calls the residential facility weekly, asking to return, and when you bring it up to her as a point of discussion, she scratches herself on the arm, stating, quote, you made me hurt myself. So the questions you're going to ask in your group is, how can we engage in problem solving? How can we manage the emotional reactions that are arising after reading this case? And what skills can you build for yourself and with the client through looking towards resolution? So I'm going to stop sharing my screen and Sasha is going to put you all into breakout rooms and then we'll hop in to make sure you all have the link. No, honestly, it wasn't really enough time to discuss. We, we were just getting into oh. the discussion. And we were, we were looking at the seconds counting down, but what we did realize is that Ava, you know, it, it took her probably a year to get used to the last people she was connecting with. And she was obviously missing that. She, she met us for the first time and she's testing us, right? She's scratching herself. She's saying, uh, you made me hurt myself. Is this, is this opening the door to send you back? What, what is this about? But one, one, one individual in our group said, you know, it has to be about allowing her time to be able to speak, be listened to, and, and then just open that door to say, hey, I'm here. As much as you'd like your, your last therapist, you're not there, I'm here. And you can take advantage of that right now. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Javier, for sharing that. I think it, you really hit a really key component of that she's testing us and that she's trying to push us away. Um, and because she probably feels the loss, right, of her last therapist and doesn't want to feel that again. So that's a really great thing to pick up on. Um, does anyone else have any thoughts for meeting with their group? Well, I, um, my team member wrote it in the chat, but um, I was talking about just also meeting them where they're at, um, you know, what, what they went through. That's really difficult. I mean, they, you know, having to, um, you know, normalize it and validate, it comes a long way. So they, they're probably, you know, um, saying all these things, but that's not what the, they really feel. You know, there's so much more going on inside and not focusing on the, that distraction, but really hearing them out. Yeah, no, that brings it right back to empathy too. Um, and it's, yes, assessing for suicidal thoughts, self-harm, building rapport, all great things. Thank you so much for sharing. No problem. <laughs> Anyone else have anything that came to mind? Perhaps about skills you're thinking would be useful to try to help um, Ava learn together if she's open to it later on? Does anything come to mind there? Um, someone in our group uh, brought up the fact of uh, just being self-aware of your own emotions. And if the client or member is already at an elevated just uh, state, um, you don't want to match that. You want to make sure that you check yourself um, 
as far as your emotions. So that emotional intelligence and just being aware of where the, the member is at at the time. No, that's, that's great. Thank you so much. I, I think it's really important to not match that elevated state and remain that calm grounding force even when they're up here or here, even though it is very distressing if someone suddenly in session scratches themselves, that's distressing, that's worrisome. Like we are allowed to have an emotional reaction to that. It's just how we reflect that back to them has to be of empathetic concern and grounding and that we're not elevated to by it. Okay, thank you guys for participating so much. All right, our next one, and I will send you to breakout rooms again, but I will have it be longer. <laughs> um, so the consolidation narrative. Uh, so this part is about after continued weekly meetings, despite Ava's fluctuating moods towards you and therapy, she begins to discuss how she felt abandoned by the residential facility that they quote, really just wanted to get me out of there because I didn't do enough chores or whatever. Eva is able to recognize slowly but surely her continued friendships from her time at the facility with other residents. As a result, her focus on the facility lessens over time. Eventually, you begin to discuss where these feelings of abandonment first started in her childhood and the disruptions they have caused in Eva's life because of this, quote, constant fear that it will happen again, that I will be alone. You and Ava have constructed a, quote, crisis plan for when she feels the urge to hurt herself because of intense emotions that may arise during session. It consists of pace breathing, affirmations, and naming objects in the room to center herself. She remains hesitant to talk further about her trauma, but is becoming more open and trusting of your time together. So if we're just reflecting on this case or a similar case for you of how are you affected by this kind of work, your physical and emotional responses, what skills are you building as a result of working in this case or a similar case, and any personal meaning derived from the case? I think most of us are back from the breakout rooms and want to make sure you can all unmute yourselves to discuss any key takeaways from your breakout room. Yeah, um, in our breakout room, we talked about some physical responses we had. Um, I'll just share what I usually, how I usually feel in crisis situations. I feel like my chest, my chest usually tightens. Um, that's kind of like the main thing. Um, when I like read scenarios like this or experience crisis situations is like just like a really like tightness in my chest and like my shoulders feel really tight as well. Yeah, no, that's a really great way to build awareness too of just like the impact on our physical body when working with trauma. Thank you for sharing. Salvador asked, any personal meaning derived from the case? Yeah, I, I think that's, I probably wrote that a bit too broadly, but really it's just about like, we all have had cases where we learned something significant from them, right? Um, and so I just like, if anything came to mind of like personal meaning from working with a difficult case, of someone that has a lot of trauma. And as this client has, you know, some personality flares as we liked to call them in our work. So that's kind of what I mean from the meaning you can derive. Does anyone else would like to share anything from their time in the breakout room? Anything people would like to say about skills that they've built when working with trauma that have been very useful for them for scenarios like this? I know for our team, we always tried to debrief um, after difficult sessions with shared clients and try to share whatever skills or tools that we were using that we found to be impactful with the client. Really, you know, our community of practice is full of so many 
brilliant people with good ideas and oftentimes we just don't have the time to share them all. So uh, I appreciate you all taking the time today. Um, is there anything else that comes to mind? All right, and I know I'm going over time. This was originally just supposed to be an hour and then I realized there was lots to go over. So I, I thank you all for staying on the line. Um, our skill set number four is we're, we're nearing the end, four out of five, reducing emotional labor. And it's really just talking about what emotions can arise while working with trauma. And fun fact, emotional labor was a term first discovered in the early 80s by this author, Haas Child, who found that the work of flight attendants could not be described by just the physical aspects or cognitive demands that there was labor in their emotions. Now it's come to be known as emotional work or studying emotional work. Um, but I still think it's interesting to know when we first started to talk about these things. Um, so I know for myself working with trauma, sometimes I can feel frustrated uh, because there are things that can happen that are behaviors that they engage in that we've worked really hard with them to try to have growth on. And when that growth doesn't happen in a swift fashion or looks a lot more up and down, that can in turn create some frustration in ourselves because we want the client to succeed. Um, other times there's really intense stories being shared and that can make us just plain sad at the end of a day to hear all of that and know that we can't change any of that. And sometimes that may lead to feelings of helplessness or feeling overwhelmed, uh, frustrated, transference, feeling as if I'm stuck with the client, not moving forward. Thank you, Salvador. All things that can come up naturally. So one way to navigate is this very useful DBT skill that I use with myself sometimes and a lot of times with clients is riding the wave. Um, it's an excellent skill set of where you're observing your feeling, you're noticing it, you're stepping back, experiencing your feeling as a wave coming and going. You're not trying to block the feeling, not trying to get rid of it, not pushing it away or holding on to it, making it bigger or smaller, remembering you're not the feeling. You don't need to act on it or judge it. And the goal is that we name our feeling and we invite it home for dinner and we sit with it because sometimes things linger and things take time and that's okay. I think we go through the day sometimes where we're seeing client after client after client. We don't even have a moment to step back and to notice how we're doing or what we're feeling and acknowledging that and accepting that is a process in itself, but it's a very useful one to help us kind of not feel that tension in our shoulders as much or the tightness in our chest or the physical and emotional fatigue that can often happen. And that brings us to our last section, which is parasympathetic recovery. And there's this wonderful Arabic proverb, sleep doesn't help if your soul is tired. And I just thought that was a really beautiful way to remember to take care of ourselves. So I'm not going to go into the, the nervous system too much because we have trauma-informed care on our site and understanding the stress response, which goes into beautiful detail about these concepts much more and how they relate. The most important thing to take away is that the autonomic nervous system has two branches, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. And we have all heard about fight or flight, and that is regulated by the sympathetic nervous system. And lots of situations at work can create this fight or flight response. So the goal of parasympathetic recovery is that it helps us to return to a normal resting state. 
So our system slows the heart rate, it slows our breathing, we reduce blood flow to our muscles and our pupils constrict as well. So this all helps us to achieve that normal resting state. So ways that we can engage in parasympathetic recovery at work. Pausing is powerful. They did a study of doctors that took just a minute before they met with another patient and they focused on their breath and planted their feet on the ground and just took two deep breaths or breaths of whatever sort of pace looks feels good to you and that was very impactful for their day it was very centering and very grounding um, another great one is standing at work no matter if you exercise every day of the week if you're sitting down all day at work that has adverse health consequences so anytime you can you like create some space to stand i myself do not have a standing desk. I have my kitchen counter with some books on it and that has created a laptop space. So there's ways to get creative when we're working from home to kind of make sure we're moving our body and switching up the day and kind of getting us to more regular states that are healthy. And then mindfulness. I mean, we all know that mindfulness is extremely helpful. Um, mindfulness, we don't ha often have time for meditation at work, but just taking a moment or two for ourselves to be mindful at work, to take a five minute walk and notice that the leaves are changing a little bit or the air smells like fall, something like that is very, very helpful. And then lastly is focused engagement. We kind of talked about this in regulating rumination in that really flow state of mind trying to achieve it and focused engagement is really similar to that in kind of how you can visualize it or think of it on your own. Um, some questions that you would want to ask yourself in focused engagement. I'm not going to read them all, but they're here on this slide to really engage your senses for touch, sight, hearing, smell, and taste. And some examples of focused engagement that are different from the regulating rumination is that it can be 20 minutes that can even be like swiffering, vacuuming, doing the dishes. It can be activities that doing the laundry, ironing, things we have to do no matter what. We can create a more focused engagement with those and not distracting with something on in the background, really being mindful of what's going on. And that 20 minutes helps with this complete mental alignment, attention, and focus that helps our parasympathetic recovery. We're not overstimulated, we're focused on the task at hand. And then another great example that my coworker David was saying uh, was washing your hands, right? We have to do that all the time now. <laughs> and washing your hands in warm water with some nice soap you bought yourself and really enjoying that aromatherapy is a good practice to really calm and soothe yourself throughout the day that may seem really simple, but is quite impactful. And the whole goal of parasympathetic recovery is building awareness of when our internal state is dysregulated and we're trying to consciously move back to center. So some ways to do it with our team. Supervision is often something that we get until we get licensed and then we don't have it anymore. But you need that person to check in with no matter the wherever you're at in your career. You still need a person to check in with, someone you can consult with on your team or above your team because there's a lot going on and if we keep that all inside. If we don't have some way to reflect, to process, to consult, we're missing out on that piece and we're not able to fully engage in this parasympathetic recovery if we're in our head trying to process everything on our own. And I put true teamwork because I know a lot of teams and different things have 
the, the one most experienced clinician that's going to get all the most difficult, complicated cases. And really, we want to make sure that we divide and conquer. Not the best metaphor for this, but I think you understand what I'm saying in that we want to make sure that no matter how green our clinicians are, we're balancing the caseload of each clinician so that they still have challenging ones, but we're not giving all the most challenging or complicated to our most advanced clinician because that's going to burn them out. And true teamwork and also that when there's a crisis and you're going to be with them for eight hours until they get assessed by emergency services, create shifts if you can, because it's, you can't, you know, you have to have eyes on the client and we want to maintain that, but we also want to maintain, you know, our team just feeling supported and doing that, breaking that into shifts was a useful way that we found to make sure each team member had a break and felt supported. Social connection is super important even now because now we just have Zoom <laughs> or Teams or whatever platform you may use. Uh, right now we do bi-weekly happy hour trivias where we have fun and you know winner gets bragging rights and it's a good way to decompress for an hour from five to six every other Friday. Um, in my last job before this we would take lunch breaks together and coming from a crisis house where we never took lunch breaks we ate at our desk very quickly and got back to work i thought it was so wild that they took the time to do this there was work that had to be done but it was such a grounding wonderful way to build up our team to support our team we would do potlucks and just a really nice way to get to know each other and support each other um, an accountability partner is that person that's probably not your one giving you supervision but is your person that will tell you when you're messing up which happens right if we're having a bad day bad days happen but i had a a coworker who was a program coordinator with me, and she once told me, Jean, you get really grumpy on Thursdays. <laughs> and that was really helpful because I had to reflect, what was I doing Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday that I was getting to a place of grumpiness by Thursday? And so you need that person that you can count on to be honest with you, that you can trust for their feedback, and you can look out for each other. And lastly, strategic vacations. I know that right now vacations don't make the most sense, but taking a mental health day or taking a day for a three-day weekend so you can help your kids with all these remote projects they're working on are extremely important because we want to model to our team that we take the time to take care of ourselves. And there's a way to always stagger it and check in with each other, which I know you guys are probably already doing, but I think these are good practices to remember that are also helpful to our parasympathetic recovery in the context of work. So that brings us to the end um, with this lovely quote by Judith Herman, recovery can take place only within the context of relationships. It cannot occur in isolation. And I just think that's a nice note to end on to remember how important the work is that you do. And I hope that you found one of these strategies helpful for your practice. And I just want to thank you all for taking the time today. If you um, are interested in any of the research that's behind it, these slides are posted. I encourage you to um, look it up at your leisure. I have a question. Yeah. Um, in skill set number three, regulating rumination, what are some like tips on kind of staying focused and present during your session um, without getting, I don't know, caught up in your thoughts or just worrying about the next step? Yeah, I like to take, because I, I definitely am a multitasker that's used to thinking about so many things at once, which I'm sure you you guys 
can struggle with too. I like to take note of really extensive notes on pen and paper if they're comfortable with that, because that way I'm writing down what they're saying and it helps me focus on the words of what's going on is really helpful. Um, that, that may be too much, especially if they are paranoid of note taking. And then I would try to use kind of the same sort of skills that we use with our clients of like grounding ourselves to the current moment and sometimes I'll even, oh, share this survey link. Um, you know, try to center myself and ground myself with a few deep breaths, or if the client isn't really feeling the session either, I will take a break and have a stretch together, which might sound silly, but a lot of our clients aren't going to be up for really complex, like therapeutic modalities and getting like physical things out of our system together is it might seem silly but it was a way to really bond with clients and center ourselves for a session and just thank you all again for being here today